0: For all of our members, we're continuing in the series where we're studying through the songs of Moses. Today, we're going to begin reading in Revelation chapter 15, verse 1 in a few moments. But as we prepare to do that, I just want to remind us throughout our series, we've learned that there are four songs of Moses across the Bible. And I want to remind us of this because of how the series has been spread out a little bit. Exodus chapter 15, verses 1 through 21. Deuteronomy 31.30 through 32.47, Psalm 90, and now we come to Revelation 15, 3 and 4. All at different points in the people of Israel's life. Right after they'd been brought out of the land of Egypt in Exodus, right as they're on the cusp of entering the promised land in Deuteronomy, while they're in the midst of exile for Psalm 90, and now here John fast-forwards us to the end of all things in Revelation 15 learning over this series that participation in the praise of God leads to our trust in the promises of God. One of the things that we're doing as we participate in the praises of God this morning is reminding ourselves and teaching ourselves to trust in the promises of God, promises that we doubt. And then from Deuteronomy 32, that God is zealous for the holiness of his people. He saves his people because he loves them, but he longs for them to be a holy people. And from Psalm 90... That exile is the worst, but it reveals the best. Even in the midst of exile, the people were able to to get a glimpse of who God is and what God has done for them. But now, after leaving the people in exile, our last time together, we fast forward to the end of all things as the scene shifts to the redeemed beside the sea of glass, to those who have actually triumphed over the beast. As the people delivered by God, now in this moment, offer praises to glorify God. In Revelation, the song of Moses crescendos. It crescendos as the perspective shifts from looking forward in hope of what God will do, now to where they're actually looking back on all that God has done. Which is why, Revelations 404 verses, there are hundreds and hundreds of references to earlier scripture, if you are not familiar with previous writings in the scripture, you are not going to understand the book of Revelation any more than you would understand any novel that you read by picking up the last chapter, reading it, and closing the book. Imagery that we will have almost no time to explore today as we hone in on this song in particular. So if you were expecting me to explain a lot about the book of Revelation, you will be sorely disappointed. And if you think I'm bypassing details from the book of Revelation, you are probably right because I have one job today. My job is to help us understand this song of Moses in light of the other songs of Moses. And one day when I grow up, I'll preach through Revelation. John writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he speaks to us with the same authority as if Jesus Christ himself were here speaking to us today. We're going to begin reading in chapter 15, verse 1. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests, and one of the four living creatures, "'Gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls "'full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. "'And the sanctuary was filled with smoke "'from the glory of God and from his power. "'And no one could enter the sanctuary "'until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. "'Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling, "'The seven angels, go and pour out on the earth "'the seven bowls of the wrath of God.' So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshiped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea and it became like the blood of a corpse and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water and they became blood and I heard the angel in charge of the water say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was. For you brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire And they were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues, and they did not repent and give him glory. And the fifth angel poured out his bowl, and on the throne of the beast and on his kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates. And its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God, the almighty behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, Peals of thunder and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was the earthquake. The great city was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath and every island fled away and no mountains were to be found and great hailstones About 100 pounds each fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plagues of hail, because the plague was so severe. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we need your help as we come to this mysterious book. Great and amazing are your deeds, and yet, Father, we spend so little time reflecting on them in our own lives. Just and true are your ways. And yet so often we complain about your providence in our life. Merciful is God Almighty to save those who do not deserve salvation. And yet we grumble and we're bitter and we bicker. Father, forgive us of our sins and help us now, we pray, as we turn our attention to your word we ask, Father, that you would help us to understand the Scripture, to understand what was written here in Revelation 15, that we might be encouraged today as this letter was given to people that they might be encouraged to persevere. We pray, Father, that we too would be encouraged to persevere today as we see the eternal day of God drawing near. And we ask all of this, In the name of the Lord God, the Almighty, the King of the nations, the triune God who has revealed himself to us as Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen. Without perspective, it is difficult to maintain motivation to persevere. We know this to be true. We see this in our life all of the time. But you will see this in my life in particular in these warmer months as we do in what the Johnson household, what we call bike ride runs through the borough. It's quite the experience to watch as I run through the borough, yelling at kids who have gone too far ahead of me, talking to kids who are beside me, and pleading with kids behind me that they would keep moving so we don't lose everybody else. One of the things that happens as we move through the borough and try to dodge traffic is I'm constantly encouraging the kids to not lose perspective and to be motivated to get to the end. Simply yelling out all the time, Johnson's never, and they go, quit. And Johnson's never, leave Johnson's behind. Motivating them to the end and reminding them of the reward. When we get home, there will be water. Nobody can drink water while they're running. We're going to get water when we get home. Snacks will be at home. Nobody's going to eat snacks while we're riding bikes. You're crashing enough as it is. Without perspective, motivation is difficult to keep. It is hard to persevere. John knows this too, and John motivates us to overcome by showing us the song of the overcomers. John comes alongside us and he actually gives us perspective. Perspective to help us see so that we might persevere into the future. Three simple points will frame our time together this morning. Notice first, different time, but a similar location. Look with me in verse two of chapter 15. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. And also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. As John looks out in chapter 15, he sees verse 1 a marvelous and incredible sign in heaven. A marvelous and incredible sign that is actually evoking the exodus from Egypt. Verse 1 Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing. Seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. Plagues evoking the judgments of God, the judgments of God that God poured out on Egypt, the judgments of God that God has poured out on all who have turned away from him, plagues which are, verse 1, the last and the climactic ones in the book of Revelation as God's wrath towards God's enemies reaches its climax in the apocalypse beside the heavenly counterpart of the Red Sea, verse 2. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. The twice-mentioned sea of glass is not intended to make us think of the apostle standing beside the coastline on our favorite day in Ocean City, New Jersey, but of cosmic evil like the beast rising out of the sea in chapter 13, verse 1, chaotic powers that have been wreaking havoc, destructive powers that have been ruining everyone, chaotic powers that are now calmed and tranquil beside the sea of glass. By the Lamb's overcoming, as the nation's overcoming is on full display beside the enemy's watery abode. Verse 2. I saw also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass. In fulfillment of what Daniel spoke of in chapter 7, verses 10 through 11... The Lamb's overcoming has actually paved the way for the saints overcoming of the beast beside the sea. Daniel chapter seven, verses 10 through 11. Just write it down and read it later. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. Those who have refused to compromise their faith in the midst of persecution and pressure have overcome in the apocalypse. They have conquered. But the question for us now is how have they conquered? Take your Bible, flip back to chapter 12, verse 11. And they have conquered him, the beast, the enemy, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even to death. They are victorious because of the Lamb. And he has granted them a share in his victory at the sea. They conquer by the blood of the Lamb. And chapter 12, verse 11 by the word of their testimony, they have trusted in the blood of the Lamb, and they have testified. They have testified to their trust in the blood of the Lamb. In his, in his chapter, this chapter uh, 12, verse 11, even when they were faithful, being faithful as they loved not their lives even to death. Recently, a fellow pastor was telling us at the time that he was at a conference that was intended to mobilize students as missionaries to some of the hard-to-reach places on the planet. And on one evening in particular, there was an elder lady that they brought into the room and as she passed through the room and made her way toward the platform, he confessed that he had thought at that time when he was a student, what does she have to say to us younglings? Only to learn that the elderly lady that was approaching the platform was Dr. Helen Rosevier, a famous English missionary to the Congo. Helen was born in 1925 where her father taught mathematics, raised in a high Anglican church, Helen's Sunday school teacher once told their class about India, and Helen resolved as a young girl that she would herself one day be a missionary. Despite the Christian heritage in her family and her faithful attendance to the church, Helen sensed a void in her life, and there was distance from God. So she enrolled in Newham College at Cambridge University to study medicine. There she joined Cambridge Intercollegiate Christian Union through the invitation of a friend that she had. She became an active participant in prayer, in their meetings, in their Bible studies, reading the New Testament for the first time in her life. But she later said that she understood for the first time that Christianity had been more head knowledge for her than heart knowledge. In the winter of 1945, the Lord seemed to meet her in a personal way during a student retreat. She gave her testimony on the final evening, and the Bible teacher, Graham Sc- uh, Scroggie, wrote Philippians chapter 3, verse 10 in her Bible and told her this. Tonight, you've entered into the first part of that verse, that I may know him. This is only the beginning, Helen, and there's a long journey ahead. My prayer for you is that you will go on through the verse to know the power of his resurrection, and also, God willing, one day participate in the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto death. She felt an increased call to mission after her conversion. She publicly declared that she wanted to be a missionary at a gathering in northern England, saying to her friends and family that she would go anywhere that the Lord wanted her to, no matter the cost. After graduating from Cambridge with her doctorate in medicine, Helen studied for six months at the Worldwide Evangelization Crusade College at Crystal Palace. From there, she went to Belgium to study French and Holland to take a course on tropical medicine as she prepared for her appointment in the Congo. In mid-March 1953, at the age of 28, she arrived in the northwest region of the Congo, later named Zaire. After the first two years there, she had participated, and they had founded a training school for nurses. They had trained women to serve as nurse evangelists. They turned a a would-be-run clinic into a healthy, faithful clinic, and there were dispensaries all throughout the region. And after two long years, she comes off the field, only to go back a few years later. And while Helen was away... We see that the Congo became an independent from Belgium in 1960. War broke out while she was there. All the medical facilities that she had labored to build over the course of the decade were destroyed. And she was one of ten Protestant missionaries put under house arrest by rebel forces weeks after their arrival. And then she describes the night that she tried to escape. They found me. They dragged me to my feet. They struck me overhead head and shoulders. They flung me on the ground and kicked me. They dragged me to my feet only to strike me again. The sickening, searing pain of a broken tooth. A mouth full of sticky blood. My glasses gone. Beyond sense, numb with horror and unknown fear. Driven. Dragged. Pushed back to my own house. Yelled at. Insulted cursed she wrote that her captors were brutal and drunken they cursed at her and swore they hit her with the butt end of rifles and then she was brutally raped years later in front of all of these college students reflecting on that time she began to ask herself a cambridge grad who had given her life to the lord to serve anywhere for any cost Looking back at that time, she had first asked, is it worth it? Only later to realize that she had been asking the wrong question. When the awful moments came during the rebellion and the price seemed too high to pay, the Lord seemed to say to me, change the question, Helen. It's not, is it worth it? It's, am I worthy? And she concluded that in spite of the pain that she had endured, always, always, And forever, the answer would be yes. He is worthy. Through God's grace at work within her during that harrowing ordeal, Helen decided to follow the Savior who she had suffered for because he was worthy, no matter what she had faced in this life. And that worthy cry echoes throughout this book in Revelation, chapter 5, verse 12. In a loud voice, they were saying, Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Parents, I wonder, are you teaching your kids that he is worthy? Are you teaching them that it's not worth it by the way that you live your life? You're here on Sundays. You sing with everybody else. You do what the rest of the world does the rest of the week and functionally communicate to your kids that he's not worthy, that it's not worth it. Fellow members of this church, I wonder if it's more important to you to have a fulfilling life or to serve the Savior who suffered and bled and died for you. Giving himself entirely that you might receive freely the grace of God and live in hope. Brothers and sisters, fellow believers, have you been asking yourself, is it worth it? To wake up early, to stay up late, to serve when I'm tired, to be here when I don't want to be, to give what I feel that I don't have, when the question is actually, is He worthy? He is. What enables people like Helen and those who have conquered in the book of Revelation to finally see clearly enough that they love their lives even to death? The perspective of victory, which is what the book of Revelation is all about. Chapter 15, verse 2. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast in its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. If you go back and read and reread the book of Revelation, you will see this sea of glass only one other time in the apocalypse. Chapter 4, verse 6. Where before the throne, they were as it, uh, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. But now here before the throne, John depicts this sea of glass in verse 2, mingled with fire in anticipation of the cosmic disturbance that will result from the fire of God's wrath being poured out on God's enemies who worship the beast in its image and who refuse to give God uh, glory. But those who conquered are, verse 2, standing beside that sea of glass, not feeling the judgment of God, with harps in their hands, giving God's praise. God has conquered the enemy, and he deserves praise. And there, from the perspective of victory, beside the waters of judgment, they are able to praise him for his awesome display of justice and mercy and might, because perhaps for the first time they are able to see clearly. John motivates us to overcome by showing us the song of the overcomers. He gives us another perspective. He does not tell us what will happen between now and that moment. Friend, the reality is, if God told you everything that you would have to go through between this moment and that moment of victory, you would not do it. But God gives you clarity of that moment so that you would persevere into the future. A different time, but a similar location, beside the sea of victory. Notice second, different words, but a similar message. Look in verse 3. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, And the song that they sing recalls the song that Israel sang after God brought them safely through the waters of the Red Sea and closed all of those waters in on their enemies, the Egyptians. And just as the Israelites praised God by the sea after he delivered them from Pharaoh, so now the overcomers, they praise God by the sea of glass for defeating their enemies on their behalf because as God saved Israel by judging Egypt, so God has saved them by judging, verse 2, the beast and its image and the number of its name. And just like the people of old, the response of the people of God is song and praise. The overcomers praise God by singing, verse 3, the song of Moses, the servant of God. Moses is called God's servant in chapter four, uh, Exodus chapter 14, verse 31, immediately prior to the first song of Moses in chapter 15, verses 1 through 21. But the song now is about a much greater deliverance. Accomplished by God's final servant. Through verse 3, the work of the Lamb. The song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. The song of Moses and the uh, song of the Lamb are, the apostle tells us, related. Since the promises made to Moses are finally and ultimately fulfilled in the salvation accomplished by the Lamb. And in this way, Revelation chapter 15 verses 3 through 4 actually helps us. It helps us see That the exodus from Egypt actually pointed forward to the redemption. The exodus from sin accomplished by the Lamb of God. So those who conquered now use their harps to praise the Lamb's victory as the fulfillment of that which the Red Sea pointed to. Christ is the true Passover Lamb, through whose death God's people are ultimately redeemed. And just like at the first Passover, the Lamb's blood covers them and they are not destroyed, so now the Lamb's blood covers them and they are not destroyed. And their response to that great deliverance is song. The overcomers sing while their enemies are judged. It's an astonishing image for us. And it's not exactly what we think. That we as God's people, redeemed by God, will sing songs of praise as we see the destruction of our enemies. But that is precisely what happens here in the book of Revelation. Great and amazing are your deeds, verse 3. O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. There are four lines in the second half of verse three, and they're made up of two couplets, two two line sets. Each one consists of a statement about God in the first line, followed by a address to God using a title for Him in the second half. God's ways, the Apocalypse tells us, they are great. They are amazing. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The beast and its image have been destroyed. He has saved in unprecedented ways. He has defied all odds. He has done great, marvelous, mighty, wonderful things. But John does not want us to just see the great and wonderful things. He wants us to hear something else in the song. Just and true are his ways. God's salvation of his people is inseparable from the just and true judgment of the wicked and the rescuing of his saints. And on the other side of the battle, the people will sing what they doubted in his life, that his ways were always just, that he never deceived them, he was always true and faithful, that he was always righteous, that he never lied to them even when they could not believe him, that he was faithful to the end, that he was honest always, and he alone is worthy of praise because of it. We come to the Bible and we look at all the climactic moments of the Bible and we see the great majesty and wonder of our God. But in all the moments of our lives that aren't climactic, mountaintop moments, we're always questioning, is he true? Is he good? Is he faithful? Is he with me? Is he right? John tells us, that the day is coming when we will see very clearly the great and awesome things of God and the just and true ways of God through it all. He alone is worthy of praise as Lord God the Almighty. He alone is King of the nations, all-powerful, sovereign ruler, unchallenged, Lord God. So John asks, verse 4, Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name. Fearing the Lord in this song is synonymous with glorifying his name. Uh, accurate perspective of the judgment of God upon the wicked brings those who are saved to glorify God because when they see the great and amazing deeds of the Lord and the just and true ways of the king of the nations, they fear and they give him worship. But why? Because God has conquered their enemy and he deserves their praise. John motivates us to overcome by showing us the song of the overcomers. He actually calls us to persevere by giving us perspective, by helping us see a different time but a similar location, different words but a similar message. Notice third, a different song but similar reasons for singing it. Look again at verse 4. For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. God's plan for the world, including his judgment and salvation, is awesome. When people see God's work in saving and judging, they fear him and they give him glory. To his great and mighty and awesome name. The only response to seeing clearly is to worship God and to bow down and to humble ourselves. And verse 4, they recognize, perhaps for the first time, that he is holy. No one is like the Lord There is never a rival. He is distinct from all creation. He is in a category all by himself. The God that we worship is the one true and living God. There are no other gods. So verse 4, all nations come to worship him, and they bow down before the one true God. Not all without exception, but all without distinction will come, and they will worship, and they will praise, and they will glorify, and they will honor God the Almighty, King of the nations, because, verse 4, his righteous acts have been revealed. Friends, the reason for worshiping God here week in and week out might not seem apparent to you now. And in fact, it's not lost to me that many weeks... You probably don't want to be here doing it. But you know you're a member, and you know Christians are supposed to do it, and you're afraid somebody will call you if you don't come. But John helps us see for the first time that a day is coming when we will see very clearly the reason for all of the disciplines in our life as a congregational community the reason for all of the worship, and all of the praise, and all of the service, and all of the giving, all of the prayers. He tells us that on that day it will be revealed. The apocalypse teaches us that we will fear him and we will glorify him and we will worship him and we will praise him. We will honor him. We will lift his name high because on that day it will be crystal clear that he was just and true, merciful and faithful. And we will understand what we disbelieve even now as we finally have perspective to see everything by showing us those who sing the song of Moses in verses three and four, John means to to motivate us to overcome. He's motivating us to overcome because we actually sit in the same type of position as these people. Here they are at the end of the first century. Jesus has been gone for about 50 years. They're wondering where are the promises of his coming and is it worth it? Is it worth it to experience the persecution of Nero? Nero. Is it worth it to be alienated by your family and friends? Is it worth it to give up some of what you have, the very little that you have, so that other people would have? Is it worth it to learn so that we might praise better? Is it worth it to take the gospel to people who hate you? And John gives them this vision to help them see he is worthy and it is worth it all of the time. He gives them perspective so that they might continue to persevere and he gives us perspective here and Nearly 2,000 years later, every Sunday is a perpetual reminder. Jesus has not yet come back. And we are waiting for the promise of his coming. And it can seem so far off. If you're suffering here this morning, it's impossible at times to see it. If you're suffering under depression, you can't almost believe it. If you're crushed by the weight of anxiety, you don't even feel anything, John wants us to see that a day is coming when you will understand and you will believe and you will feel on that day as all wrong things are made right. John forces us to ask questions. How will you relate to God's great and amazing deeds? Will you be one of the overcomers or will you be like those who refused? Will his just and true ways mean deliverance for you? Or will they mean judgment for you? Because you refuse to bow your knee to the lamb that was slain. Will you look forward to that day and rejoice? Or will it be a day of terror and wailing? How is it that the nations, you and me, can come to worship rather than to be judged? Friends, by the blood of the lamb. From Exodus to Revelation, we see how expansive God's promises become. From the people of Israel to all nations of the earth, they are included without distinction. From Egypt to Ecuador and everywhere in between, north and south, east and west, There are people who sing the song of salvation of the Lamb by grace alone through faith alone. God's plan is so much more expansive than they could have ever imagined. It includes more people than they could have ever hoped. It draws people in from every tribe and tongue and nation. And together, these people now have something in common, the praise of the Lamb who was slain. And just like all nations, those people come together and they sing of the salvation that is theirs. Because they need to be saved just like you and I need to be saved. Saved from sin. Friend, you might be here and you might not want to think of yourself as a sinner, but you are a sinner. And your sin has alienated you from God. It has wrecked your life, not being or doing what God requires in his law. Your sin will send you to hell. The Bible tells us that because of our sin, our relationship with God has been so radically severed that the only way for us to be reconciled to God is to repent of that sin, to turn away from it, not to feel remorseful about it, not to feel sorry about it, not to wish that we didn't have consequences because of it, not to try to distance ourselves from it long enough that we no longer remember it, but to actually turn away from it radically and believe in the promises of God enough that we are forever different because of that repentance and belief. Because his revelation helps us see a day of judgment is coming, a day of judgment when God will pour out the fury of his wrath as we read in chapter 16. Friend, a day of judgment is coming and no one will escape. Do not be deceived. But the promise of the gospel is for you this morning. Come to Christ. Repent and believe. Turn from sin and turn to him. Trust in the Savior and you will be born again. Friend, if you're here and you do not consider yourself a Christian or you consider yourself a Christian but the way that you have lived your life is probably a testimony that you actually might not be a Christian. We would love to speak with you today to open up the Bible and to offer you assurance of the forgiveness of sins that comes by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And believer, if you are here today, that promises for you as well. God promises that you will overcome by trusting in the Lamb whose blood was shed for you. How do you rely on the future perspective now in this moment when we lack it. We rely on that future perspective in this moment when we lack it by singing the song of the redeemed. The last song in the Bible, Revelation 15 verses 3 and 4, evokes the first song in the Bible, Exodus chapter 15, verses 1 through 21, and it teaches us the redeemed have been singing and will worship and will always sing because God has conquered the enemy and he deserves praise, and we will never tire of singing the song of the redeemed. As one musician said about song, in the end, heaven and earth will pass away. The sun and moon will be forgotten in the face of a light far more brilliant and beautiful. Death will be no more and time itself will cease but the glorious song that rings triumphant through the expanse of eternity will never end. Music will wipe away the memory of pain and sorrow. It will proclaim the power and might of its composer. It will rejoice in the celebration of the Lamb's marriage feast. And most amazing of all, We, the created, the chosen, the redeemed, the glorified, those who have conquered, will take part in it singing. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. In that perfect world, we will use music to honor the king throughout all eternity. We will be like a mirror, perfectly clear at last, reflecting the glory of the greatest song back to God. We will join the melody that has been given to us, to his own brilliant chorus, demonstrating in perfect unity his absolute genius. We will come face to face with the beautiful gift of music and use it as it was meant to be used to praise the giver. And the glorious sound of worship and celebration will last far beyond the memory of time. John motivates us by showing us the song of the overcomers. And that is why we see here that he changes our perspective so that we might see clearly for the first time that today is coming, perhaps sooner than we might think, when all will be revealed and we will understand because God has conquered our enemies and he deserves our praise. Friends, how do we change our perspective? By participation in the table that we're going to participate in in just a few moments. It is a sign that is pointing backward and forward to us at the same time. It is a proclamation to us, proclaiming victory. This should not just be a moment where we consider how wicked we are and feel sorry for Jesus. But this should be a moment of celebration for us, a glorious moment of victory as we remind ourselves that a day is coming when we, the redeemed, those who have conquered in Christ, will be presented victorious. And we should be happy because of it, joyful because of it, hopeful because of it. It requires self-examination, but not simply of how sinful we are, but of how wonderful the promises of God are. That we, sinners though we are, get to be included in the wonder of those promises and this Christ-diminishing age, so that we can be a part of a Christ-exalting community. Friends, God has conquered. Let us have hope. Jesus has conquered. Let us give Him praise. Friends, when we feel that we are weak, let us look forward and be reminded of the perspective that is ours in Christ, the great gift that the book of Revelation has given us. To be able, from that vantage point, to look back on all of these moments between now and then and sing praise. Nothing will help us more than visualizing this in this meal. This meal that reminds us of the great cost of our redemption. It's not simply taking bread and drinking juice. But is proclaiming to us the Lord's death until he comes. His body was broken for you because of your sin. And his blood was shed for you because of your sin. At great cost to himself, Jesus gave of himself that you might be one of those who conquer in him. Friends, the benefit is great. But so the warning is great if we come to this table trifling with our sin. If you are here and you are in unrepentant sin, sin that you're aware of, but you are not repenting of, not sin that you are aware of, but are confessing and struggling to put to death. Friends, the most loving thing that you can do today is not approach the table. But for believers who are here struggling along the way, this table is a reminder That God saves sinners, that God loves to save sinners, that God loves to forgive sinners, and God is helping sinners along the way as we look forward to that day when we will sing with the redeemed throughout all ages. We will sing and we will be confident because of the promise of assurance that comes to us in Christ. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world, all peoples without distinction. Friends, repentance removes doubt and it gives us assurance. So let us sing with assurance today as we repent afresh today and sing the song of the redeemed if you have repented of your sins and placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and have believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you have been baptized, if you are a member in good standing of an evangelical church that preaches the same gospel that this church preaches, then we invite you to come to the table with us. But friends, if not, we implore you to stay in your seat and pray that God would have mercy on you and we invite you to come speak with us I'll be at that tunnel following the service. Come speak to me and ask, what do I need to do to believe in the blood of the Lamb? It would be a privilege to open the Bible with you. I'm going to ask you to stand at this time. The people who are serving the table, please come forward during the prayer. There will be two lines. You will break off a piece of the bread, you will go to the outside, and then go back to your seat after you take a cup.